You're listening to Thinking Biblically. Welcome back to Thinking Biblically, a podcast dedicated to exploring how all of Scripture speaks to all of life. I'm Alan Gilman. Uh, Before I introduce today's guest, please don't forget to subscribe, to share, to like, and comment, all those good things. Uh, It's an encouragement and a blessing, and thank you to those who have done that uh, over these past several months. So let me introduce today's guest. Uh, For many years, Rick Harper has been a speaker, teacher, and a personal and business coach in the area of financial stewardship, as he's helped countless people learn how to handle their finances based on biblical principles. In 2016, he became the executive director of First Place Options, a pregnancy care center located here in Ottawa. Rick is married to Sherry, and they have two children. Rick, welcome to Thinking Biblically. Thanks, Alan. It's great to be here. Um, Now, what I normally do is, like what I I did with you, is I ask my my guests to send me some sort of bio, and, and sometimes people send me short ones, they send me long ones, I've received their resumes, and I've had to work from there, and then I, I come up with something that I thought would be appropriate for this, this, um, this format. And anyway, there's something that you wrote in what you sent me that I thought I would ask you about, and it's this. Rick spends his spare time building humility through poor attempts at playing hockey. And so the big question is, is it working? I, I think so. Um, I started, I, when I moved to Ottawa 25 years from now, I basically started learning how to skate and then I started playing hockey. And then about three, year, three years ago, I switched and I started learning how to play goalie. So there's no, uh, uh, there's no filter anymore. There's no one else to, uh, to mask what's going on ahead of me sometimes. So some, some days, yes, definitely it's building my humility. So, uh, but Lord willing, I'm slowly getting better. So is it Rick Harper? The puck stops here sometimes. Sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. And, well, goalie, goal, if you know, if you want a lesson in humility, goalie's a good position to play. Um, okay. So, um, I mentioned, as I introduced you, uh, uh, that you spent many years, um, and if you want, you could talk about that a little bit too, but uh, you spent many years as a personal business coach in the area of personal finances. And then a few years ago, you made this switch to be the executive director of uh, First Place Options. What you didn't fire yourself. I think a lot of that you're working on your own. So I don't think you fired yourself unless you did. That'd be an interesting story too. So why don't you share how you made that, how and why you made that transition? Well, first of all, I got into the, the personal business coaching. Uh, a friend of mine asked me one time that I worked with, if you could do anything in the world, what would you do? And this was when I was working in a, a financial firm that we we're trying to build nationally. And I said, you know what, I would teach people how to manage their money so that they got peace and happiness out of it. Cause I saw everyone was miserable about their money. Um, some cause they had none um, and some because they had too much and they were in panic constantly about it. And it, I was seeing biblically all these reasons that, that we should be able to teach people peace in a sense with their money. And um, 
my life verse almost became at that point, uh, John 10, 10, which talks about the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. So I applied that to the finances and, uh, just got involved in numbers of areas stewardship wise. But then um, I was actually in my last role, I was actually working with clients, helping them give away uh, large sums of money, which was actually quite fun um, and great to do. But my wife sent me a, a cryptic email one day saying that um, she had been a volunteer for first place options and had seen a job posting and said, uh, Rick, that I've been praying about who first place needs to be their executive director. And I think who they need is you. And I'm like, what on earth? I'm a financial guy. I'm, I've been studying stewardship and things like that. So this doesn't make a lot of sense, but if anyone else had said that to me, I would have said no way, but it was my wife. Uh, my wife got involved actually. Um, she'd had a, a few miscarriages and, um, got involved with first place and helping other people when she and I were going through the, 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 the pain kind of of that time in our life. And so I'm going, okay, I'll pray about it. And I started praying about it. And then another friend sent me the job posting. Well, this is really weird. And I'm going, I've got a job. I'm happy. I'm, I'm, and as I prayed about it, I just felt like God was saying, no, you can do something. And it was my love, truthfully, my love for people. Um, more than anything, because I could see that this was an area that was a lot bigger picture than a lot of us imagined, that a lot more biblical implications in terms of people's peace and happiness and what God wants for us versus everything else. And so as I prayed for it, I felt like I was supposed to apply. And, and um, I think I had 14 interviews by the time uh, I got hired. So um and I won't get into, I actually said no a couple of times um, and then felt like God said, no, go. And it's, it's actually been hard, but a very wonderful journey and just absolutely fantastic work we do to help people. So can you share some of the things uh, that helped you view this kind of work? Um, you're both in what you sent sent to me and then we were chatting just before we started that I my understanding is that I don't know if you'd use the word driven by or prompted by what you were seeing in the scriptures that led you to give your yourself to the kind of work you're doing now yeah the um maybe it goes back and I'd go back to the, the John 10 10 verse about the this view, this worldview that the that God wants us to have an abundant life, and that it's he calls it the thief or the enemy tries to steal and kill and destroy from that. And I just saw in this area, um, just like in in finances, people were miserable a lot of times. That in this area of an unexpected pregnancy, people were could be miserable about it and these weren't easy decisions these were hard decisions for people and and it was hard even afterwards and so as i started looking into that i i started um in a sense i just felt the pain that i was seeing people go through and i was like lord if there's something i can do to help it 
Um, I know I wouldn't be counseling women or anything like that, but there are other areas that I knew in terms of how to, to help build up uh, a, a ministry organization and, and things of that nature that I could lend an aid to, um, and that my goal would be to support the team so they could do the work. And um, in terms of the mission itself, as I got here, then what seemed to, to really come to life as I was studying the biblical backing of what we were doing was the concept of how much God cares about each individual person who walks through the door of first place. And that had been part of the DNA here, uh, even before I got involved. Um, and some great, some great um, ground had been set before that in this area. But as we started looking at it and started realizing that um, sometimes as Christians, we get stuck in, have, have gotten stuck in the idea that it's all about uh, the baby, the, the babies involved in an unplanned pregnancy and what's going to happen with the baby. And what God brought to my life, to my mind more and more was, well, wait, wait a second, but each woman, each man who walks through this door um, there's someone that God loves and cares about. And so how are we able to serve them? And, and so the primary purpose is actually to serve the person who walks through the door. And that led to biblical challenges in terms of, can I trust God to take care of the, the unborn child, if there's an unborn child in this situation? And if the unborn child, in the case of some of the post abortion work we do, if the unborn child um, was unborn, um, God's eternal destination of that child taken care of, but there's still this living child. And, and to me, um, biggest way I went through it was actually through the story of David's life. Um, and when you talk, when David, uh, King David, lost his son Absalom, um, and Absalom rebelled. Uh, Absalom went and was horrible, really, to his dad. And there's some history. Like it won't take all the time to go through the history. I know you know that, but there's some history, and David kind of created some of the problems there himself too. But David was just absolutely distraught when Absalom died. He didn't want Absalom to be killed and he wept and he basically said, I will be separated forever from my son, Absalom. And that was where he was all upset. I think that was in second um, Samuel 18 or so that he talked about that. And, and he had to be picked up off the ground and told basically, Hey, pay attention to all these guys who helped you win the kingdom back because these are important people. Um, but his heart was he realized that Absalom was lost. Now, if you go back, though, 12 chapters or whatever before that in 2 Samuel, then and David lost his infant son with Bathsheba, then when the child was, was dying, then David was like distraught. He was down on the ground with grief. They couldn't pull him up. But once the child passed away, he actually got up, he cleaned himself up, 
And what did he do? He went and worshiped God. And then when people said, this makes no sense, we thought you were going to just lose it completely when the child died. And he said, well, no, I know I will be with him again. Like in a sense that there is this, there is a, still going to be a good end. There's still the possibility of a good end to this story in a way. And yet, um, and so he said, I, I wept when the child's welfare was at stake, but now that he's gone, I will be with him again. And so it gave me this picture that um, if you look at David as potentially one of these um, kind of a, a, a dim reflection, a poor reflection of the father, because David was referred to as a man after God's own heart, then does that reflect how the father feels a little bit that sometimes we can lose our mind over the loss of an unborn child, which is very important and something that evident, yeah, you should grieve over this. Um, but then, but then the adult child. So when we talk about the adult children of God, the, the ones who walk through the door, the, the woman who's pregnant or the guy whose girlfriend is pregnant and he's distraught over what's going on, that God cares very deeply about those. And, and if those adult, if, if the infant child um, is to be lost, that the Lord is faithful to take care of that. But if the adult child is lost, then the adult child, it's their own decision. And that's actually an even greater tra tragedy in a strange way. I don't know if that makes sense, but it, I don't know, greater is a better, but it is a more permanent tragedy. Tragedy. There's, there's in a sense, no recovery. So as we got into this work, Right. So I, I appreciate the need to uh, elevate the need and elevate may not be the best, uh, the best term, but to to focus on the need of the the people in, that the adults involved in the unplanned pregnancy uh, that are distraught, that, that come to, to your to your center. Um, I'm not too sure if this is a, if it's necessary and th I, so this is how i'm hearing it and i'm wondering if yeah. other people are hearing this too oh, yeah. that do we need to diminish one in order to oh. properly elevate the other uh, sorry if that came across i do not mean to diminish the one like i actually if anything i would say that it's with the one case um it should raise our um, appreciation and our praise, in a sense, for God, in terms of God's miraculous provision. Um, are you talking about His care for the the the, the care for the? I, I like using the term preborn as opposed to unborn. Yeah. Unborn almost sounds a little bit little zombieish to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the the preborn, yeah, it's. You're absolutely right. Like, I don't want to diminish that because we do. That's very important, but it is, um, and it should not be diminished at all. I, I, I think, and they're actually both tied in. The reality is that the health of of everyone involved in this situation, and we see it go out to even greater lengths, where you see the effect on a sister, brother, friend. Uh, grandfather of of the 
the preborn child, how, how all this can affect them. And it's huge. And so I almost sometimes overemphasize your right, the one just to help people to shift the mindset a little bit, because that it's not one or the other. You're right. It is both. It's in fact, I, I would say every time we see someone walk through the door, there's at least three lives at stake would be a minimum um, being the preborn child, the mom, the dad. Um, so we know that at a minimum. And I would say most cases you're looking at far more than that. Um, you could be looking at nine lives or 12 lives or 26 lives. Or um, if you get into this, what if, what about all the good that this preborn child could have done in the world too? And, right. Yeah. So um, when, when you're dealing with uh, people who are post-abortive, uh, do you also deal with, uh, we might be going out about this a little backwards, but we'll see what happens because uh, I think a lot of people don't really know what a pregnancy care center does. And I think you've already been touching on it. Yep. Uh, there is this caricature of pro-life people being all about babies. It's just about babies, just about saving babies. Um, but you know, while you were talking, I was thinking there was some American uh, political person who was known to be pro-life, and he was being, this is many years ago now, he was challenged on this issue, and, and he was proposing some sort of policy to help new mothers, uh, mothers in poverty, some of this thing. And, and, and I think somebody made some sort of comment about him not just caring about babies and, and, and that part of this whole larger discussion. He said, I'm, you know, being pro-life doesn't stop when the baby's born. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's not just like the thought. And I guess in, in listening to some of the narrative uh, that's common today, um, you think what, what it seems people are given the impression that pro-life people are just happy to see as many babies born as possible and let all these people in poverty suffer trying to raise these children. And uh, we, as long as the babies are saved, you know, two thumbs up, we're all good. But that is not uh, a pro-life mentality. And certainly that's not what you're providing uh, at, uh, at first place options. So wh why don't you share a little bit more about uh, what it's like? Well, who comes, who does come to you? Because it's not simply um, it, yeah. already there's people that are post-abortive. Do you have people that come after after experiencing things like stillbirths and and you mentioned the multiple miscarriages that, that you and your wife experienced? Can you give a better picture for us of really who comes to your center? Well, the it, interestingly, as we go through this, and it's changed a bit over the years, but... Um, on what we would refer to the front end, so to speak, is that people are in the middle of an unexpected or an unplanned pregnancy, that they come because they're not sure what to do. And the reason that it's so important for a pregnancy center, I think, to exist is that there's no really no place people can go to get information and facts that aren't biased from from something and they're going into too many details so if you found yourself in the middle of an un, 
unplanned pregnancy and you don't know what to do, um, maybe not in a permanent relationship, maybe in a permanent relationship. We have people come to us um, in a given year, we could have um, women come to us from 14 to 44 kind of thing, never in between. The um, reality is they come and they just need help and advice. So as a pregnancy center, what we try and do is we've learned that um, we're Christians that, that work here, um, but we use that just to love people and care for people. And we don't try and push them in in what we do, but we try to make sure they have good information and all the information because the only other objective source, um, you, you they might go to their doctor, but the doctors don't have a lot of time to really counsel them about all the options. They'll be like, okay, you're pregnant. Do you wanna be pregnant or not? And if you don't wanna be pregnant, you take these pills and, and be done with it, or you go to this, this clinic and be done with it. Um, but to sit and just listen and walk people through. So it actually starts even before that. We do pregnancy tests um, for people. And largely that would be women who come and they just don't are uncomfortable reading the tests themselves or uncomfortable with getting the results by themselves. And so we walk them through and just love them and we care for them. If it's what we then refer to a decision aid where they're like, now we are pregnant, now what do we do? is that we actually walk them through. So we, we do this with women, we do this, we've done this with men, um, we've done this, we do this with couples. Now, if we do it with couples, we'll meet initially with the couple and then we'll split them out and then we'll talk to them because what we find in couples, a large time, large part of it is communication, um, is knowing what you want and making sure that each person um, can, can work through their own values on this, but also work through what are the real decisions. And there's no one else who gives that kind of information. You have the abortion clinics in town. Um, it, it, that's like going to a car dealership and saying, I, I'm thinking about buying a car. Do you think I should buy a car? Well, if you go to a car dealership, they're going to say yes. And I hate to say it, abortion's no different. You go to an abortion clinic and say, should I get an abortion? Well, they get paid by doing abortions. So what do you think they're going to answer? Um, and so we stay out, we actually stick to the counseling side. We're very clear that we're not a medical facility, um, but we'll walk people through the counseling side of, of this and give them advice and help. And then as Christians, how we approach it is um, we look at it and we say, we want to make sure that they walk through. We know that everyone who walks through our doors in this day and age, in this society, is probably at least aware of abortion, considering abortion in some way. And so we talk to them about abortion, adoption, and parenting and break through all those options. Um, Abortion, there's a lot that people don't know about abortion. So we're able to talk to them about the realities of abortion. Um, and truthfully, sometimes it's even, um, if they're very strongly planning on having an abortion, we don't try and manipulate them to change their mind in any way. That's not our goal. We try to make sure that they understand that, that they do have other options because a lot of times they don't understand that. And then when we talk about adoption um it, that's that's an amazing journey if you walk through people that because that's probably where the biggest misperceptions between what adoption people think it is and what it actually is 
is completely different in today's society, and it's fantastic when you you see these organ these adoptions happen. And then parenting is then making sure that they know there are places we can help equip them so that if they do want to parent, then they have options. And one of our counselors one time said to me that um, I I literally went to the counselor and said so from what you all are telling me every week, you know, and I hear all the time around here, it sounds like most women feel like they're forced into a decision. And despite everyone talking about we're, we're pro-choice or whatever people want to, to say, pro-choice is about everyone can choose it, abortion. But the reality is that I said, so would it be true that it seems like about 95% of these women feel like they're forced into a decision and don't really have a decision. They said, well, it's actually probably closer to 99%. And it's because they don't understand that what are the resources that can be created around them. And so what we do as an organization is we, we help bridge the gaps and then get them the services they need. And there are some great services around here in Ottawa to help women through these situations. And so we really work with them to help them in that, which leads to then we do um, some parenting support, uh, actually some pregnancy support, sometimes getting through to pregnant, to to giving birth, um, up into including, um, we have counselors that end up going to the births um, and helping that way, doing all sorts of things that way to just help prepare them and help prepare them for what they need, what they need to get be able to bring the baby home, what they need, like getting all those those things set in place, all those social supports. Then we do parenting support afterwards. Um, in, in adoption cases, we become the birth parent support. Um, so we set up, we help them get the other connections, but then we're there simply to support the birth mom, the birth dad or the birth parents. Um, so we do all that kind of work, but then even as we do that work, we then also help by letting the people who are very much geared and set on abortion to at least plant seeds to say, okay, if you need help afterwards, you can come see us and, and we will help you and we will support you. And that, um, without going into details with uh, the abortion pill in Canada now, those needs have actually accelerated and come much quicker and much harder um, than they used to be with uh, surgical abortion, which is what used to happen. But we know that some of them are devastated. So we don't try and push it. We don't try and set anything, but we just kind of say, if you struggle with this at all, just come see us and we will help you. But we will we'll do our best to help you at that point. The post-abortion so that, so work. So that actually, so ha, so you've had these people where they they come in, you give them the information, um, you you try to not come across as overly biased, the best as you can. Um, I'm I'm hearing you're seeking to empower uh, women and couples to make informed decisions. Yep. And sometimes they decide to abort. And do some of those people actually come back to you after? Yeah, interestingly enough, not always right away, but we do get um, the reality of 
of doing that is you do get people coming back to you afterwards, but you also, a lot of the people who come to us now end up getting referred to us by professional organizations that have worked with us and recognize that we are adding lots of value. Um, Unlike sometimes the governments that don't seem to get that anytime you talk about anything about abortion, they seem to shut their eyes and be afraid. Um, but we get people referring out. Um, we've got to watch how I say We've even had referrals by um, the Morgenthaler Clinic where they've sent us. So what are you saying? These are people who are distraught after their abortions and these yeah. other agencies don't know how to help them. So they send them to you? We've had that on occasion, not not often from those kind of organizations, but we have. Um, and that is that tells me, though, that we are providing something different. Um, and it's because. Um, how do I say? It? The. Not all women react strongly, at, even after an abortion, uh, it. Um, I would say it's largely speaking, we know even any of us that God speaks to us differently about different things. And, um, but some women get distraught almost immediately. And in those cases, if they've had prior experience and know, they know we're here, usually if they've come to us and they've done, for some reason, they felt like that was their only option. Um, there's a great quote I've heard about abortion. No woman, um, largely speaking, no woman is going and choosing an abortion like they think the quote is they choose an abortion like they choose out an ice cream cone. Um, This is something that is, um, it's a heavy decision um, for a lot of women. And so afterwards, if they are distraught over, and and some of them, there's an immediate sense of relief because they're out of the situation in, but the ones that are distraught over it, the ones that are like immediately are like, oh, what have I done? Um, they need help. And so sometimes it's just, uh, those become more like triage situations where you're just trying to help stabilize the person for a while, because it takes a while for the mind, the body, the soul, the spirit to start processing all of this. Um, And then we can help just work through the things with them. And um, one of the things that drew me into the work, truthfully, is that as I was looking at it, you'd find, uh, particularly in the post-abortion abortive side, that um, post-abortive women, when I, I read an article, and I think it was in the National Post, that talked about that post-abortive women usually think that God hates them, the church hates them, and Christians hate them. And that's, a, as a Christian, I found that appalling, like, because I'm like, that's not what my experience with God would be. And it's not what I would want people to experience. And I don't think reading all of scripture, you can't get come away going that what God wants to experience to be. In fact, uh, we were talking before this, that the theme throughout scripture, even in the old Testament is actually how God loves um, and his love for us and his desire for relationship with us. I'm going, so that's not what she should be. That's not what I want to be as a Christian. That's not what, I want my church to be. Um, and so how do we start expressing this a little bit differently? Um, so by 
helping these women through these situations um, it takes a while. The you're in, you're unpacking things for quite a while, um, but it's extremely useful, and it's extremely useful because the sheer number of post-abortive women. So even a city like Ottawa, which we're in, um, there's roughly 500,000 women, you'd say, in Ottawa. We know that there are at least probably 100, statistically, there are at least around 100,000 post-abortive women, could be closer to 200,000 by now, uh, post-abortive women in Ottawa. So just get your head, start getting your head around that. So that's somewhere between one in five to one in two in five women. And if that many women thinks that, that God hates them, that the church hates them and Christians hate them, as a Christian, as someone who, who has a great appreciation for God and who God is and a great appreciation for God's love for me, I would love to see other people experience God's love for them. And so that sometimes means going and helping them in these areas of great hurt and just letting them walk through it. So we do that. We do it as Christians, but we then allow that to unfold and it's all very permission based. So we don't, we don't force our spiritual views on it, but when you're asking about who comes in on the post-abortive side, especially um, actually in every side we deal with, um, you're talking every, I've seen people from almost every different nationality come in um, most every social economic background uh, pregnancy happens to, to everyone in a sense. Um, some supports you find that like some areas of support, we tend to help more of the immigrant refugee community because they don't have the social supports and they need more of, of the physical kind of supports that we can help provide. Um, and, and then truthfully, we get everyone of every religious background imaginable. Um, and again, we never preach at people. We, we serve people the way we think Christ would serve them. And we are blessed the fact some through that people ask questions and people want to find out more and find out why we do it. And, and if we get to just share just a little bit about, Hey, this is, this is where we come from. This is why we serve you. This is, we think, this is what we think. Then those are fantastic moments. Um, but, but regardless, we serve them. Like that's we, not the purpose. Can we go back to the, um, you're estimating there's between 100 to 200,000 post-abortive women in Ottawa alone, yep. uh, and uh, which figured that out for North America. It's an astronomical number. And the way you say it, Rick, it sounds like there's all these distraught women out there uh, post-abortive and uh, that, that need your center's help. That's very different from the the picture that's often painted that uh, that really abortion is just a stigma, and if they could be free of the stigma, and bo- you know we we have celebrities boasting about their abortions, and it's really no big deal. Um, and so there's this impression that if you're struggling, you you, you got a problem, and it, and it's not a normal problem. It's it's your problem, and you just need to get over it. But you're making it sound that it might be deeper than that. 
um, are the ones that are saying it's no big deal or are they in denial or no, we can't speak for every individual, but from yeah. your experience. And before we answer that question, let me interrupt myself and ourselves, because I want to ask this before and mention it before. Here we are, two bearded, between the two of us, we're pretty bald men talking about unplanned pregnancy and women and post-abortive women. And do we have any right to even have this conversation? Should have meant said this at the beginning, but... Do you want to answer that and then and then yeah, actually I'll answer both because they're both great questions. So first of all, yeah, that was one of my things even when I came in here is like, like what right do I have to speak anything? Um, and here's where I think we do have some right um, in terms of um, my role. Why I'm here? I'm here to serve women. Um, I'm here because as uh, um, middle-aged white guy or whatever you want to call me, then the reality is it's, I think, good and acceptable and great for society if I care about women. And and the reality is I'm not, literally, I, I come here to, to serve and to love um, the women around me. And I absolutely celebrate everyone. I actually even sounds strange if you understand business philosophy my philosophy even as a uh, a person here as a director um, and one of the people who helps lead the team here is a good leader leads upwards and serves and supports everyone else to do what they want so uh, like to me it's there's a weird inversion biblically in terms of how we're supposed to lead how we're supposed to serve that we 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 serve um, the, the more you want to lead, the more you have to serve the people around you. So I think it's part of us trying to serve people. And I think that it is okay for us to be able to say, hey, we, we do know and we love and we care. Now, at the end of the day, um, I have huge respect. Like if not anything, my time here, my respect for the women around me has grown tremendously even around the team in some ways you'd be better off to interview the team. I have, there's a fantastic team here. Um, and we should clarify too, the counselors are, are women, right? Yeah. The counselors are all women. And that's what I'm saying is that from my perspective, my main role is to serve the counselors so that they can do the work that they do. They're the ones who do the work. Um, I'm trying to get all the supports in place for them. So help them do the work. And they are, they're the heroes, not me. Um, and I'm very open with that. The, um, but it is a weird situation where we're talking about it, but the, the refreshing part of it is you and I talking about it is that um, it, we're, we're talking, we wouldn't be talking about it if we care, like even myself, I would say 10 years ago, I'm not sure it would have been on my radar to be having this conversation. Um, and it's more my awareness of what do we do? And and I think both you and I need to just approach it too with humility to kind of go, okay, um, we don't know everything. Um, and, and yet that doesn't preclude us from loving people. It doesn't preclude us from caring, um, to being concerned. 
part of my greatest offenses in the work that I've done, truthfully, is that um, because this is such a political hot button topic, we don't do the medical research in this area. We don't do the research in terms of the mental health effects that we should in this area. And I when you think, so when you say we though you mean society is I mean society yeah society we're we're so let afraid. me let me clarify that for for all of us uh, so you're saying that because of the politicization of this issue people are actually not getting the help that they need yeah well right without going into too many details one of the political parties came up with a policy that said they want to take away charitable funding from organizations like First Place. Which is ridiculous that you can't do that and say you're actually pro-women in my mind, but because we're here, we're here to serve women. We constantly serve women. We do it far more efficiently than the government ever could do it. Um, and we provide a very needed element in society to an area. This goes to your second area. Your, what was your first question originally? Um, the whole area where there's a couple things that I would say. There's um, the there's a, a concept called disenfranchised grief. And what disenfranchised grief says that if you're grieving about something and you're told you have no right to grieve about it, it actually, in a sense, makes the grief worse, putting this in layman's terms. And so abortion is a huge area of disenfranchised grief because even the women who are, are grieving about this um, who have come to a realization or a personal feeling as the abortion's happening, just soon after the abortion, that they've done something that they feel horrible about, but they're told that you don't have no rights to feel that way. That, that makes grief far worse. And so this is a huge area of disenfranchised grief, for one. And so that is why we need someplace like first place. And truthfully, um, if we had, um, if we could reach and advertise so we could get more people, my gut feeling is the more we advertise, the, the more we would fill out on, on the post-abortion side. And, and we're always trying to keep a balance because um, we treat it, how I've explained it is we treat it almost like a, a fire hall where we're all, we always have to be ready for a fire. We always have to be ready for that unplanned pregnancy and have room to, to go and serve those emergency situations immediately. But while we're waiting, what, are, what do we do in between those, those fire calls? And for us, that's the post-abortion work. And so we work with people and we fill our time during the days helping these people because this is just this but that's a hugely needed and so there's that the disenfranchised grief but then there's also um, a kind of idea of cognitive dissonance it's referred to and again the layman's terms on that is basically if our brain can't compute the decisions we've made then we justify and we back those decisions by things we say. And so I think sometimes you, what you see is with the people. So as much as there's somewhere between 100,000 plus women here in Ottawa that are post-abortive, not all of them are grieving constantly about it. Some of them are not in a place that way. Some of them actually, the ones, most of them have kind of buried it 
as much as they can. And what we see is that when it, it comes out, it could come out two years later, it could come out 40 years later. And we've seen all of that. Um, with the, the medical abortion or the pill, uh, the abortion pill, we're seeing it happen much sooner where it's not uncommon to have people contact, first contact us two to four days after abortion. Where it typically before that was seven years was the average. Wow. Um, um, we just have but, a few minutes left. There's one other area I, I, we would we should touch on. And uh, I know on your site you have a, a link for Just for the Guys. Yeah. Um, and we've been talking a little bit about guys. But uh, what's that about? Well, the the work we do with guys, truthfully, it's much smaller. Um, but we do get guys as much as we, the main focus on this is of what we do is largely for women. We have guys approach us because guys do react to the whole issue of abortion or an unplanned pregnancy differently. And so it's just very valuable to have a place they can walk through. So if we have a couple that comes to us in the midst of an unplanned pregnancy, I'll often get involved and, and work with the guy um, and just ask, be able to ask hard questions and separate questions um, to them. But then in, in terms of your abortion experience, guys just process it differently. They tend to compartmentalize abortion a lot easier. Um, but it, when it comes out, it can be very tragic. So when, when guys um, focus in on an area they get very intense at focusing on it. And, and I've had a lot of guys that I've talked to that um, post-abortion have led to um, suicidal thoughts or tendencies even. Um, but they do tend to compartmentalize it and they don't see like for a woman in unplanned pregnancy, they feel something's going on with their body. They, they have more of an innate sense of this is happening guys do process the, the whole experience as well. Um, how I would explain it to, to most people is that um, no matter what you think from a religious standpoint, um, women are somewhat um, innately wired to protect the life within them. And, and guys are, are somewhat innately wired to protect their tribe, their family. And when we go against that, regardless of your religious viewpoint, the reality is it creates um, some, some feeling. And that's where you get into things like cognitive dissonance. You either have to defend the decisions you've made or you, you shut down or you ignore it completely. Like, and you try and shuffle it off, but then you just don't know when it's gonna emerge again. And that's sometimes the tragic. Do you have people who call you, email you uh, about their friends? And I know there's the, I have a friend too, but in, because one of the things I'm, I'm hearing here is that when we're dealing with things like, uh, like grief in the way you've been talking about, often we could be the last to know. And those closest to us are starting to see, oh, we're not acting the same way as we used to. There's something wrong. We're not really willing to admit it. And then friends and family are becoming distraught. They don't know what to do. Do they sometimes call your center? 
we do sometimes um we do sometimes get that the hard part is until the person themselves wants the help um it's like pushing rope uphill you can't help someone who doesn't want the help themselves um but the other thing i would say is sometimes it's one of those situations where we may never know what the root cause of this is so very often when people share like a post-abortion story with us they'll come in and say it's seven years since my abortion i've never told anybody or i've only ever told one person and so often their parents don't know often um, some of their family doesn't know some of their best friends don't know and yet it's just been eating them up inside and um where we find for women in particular, it's very, it, that this does bother because the other issue is just, like I said, it doesn't bother all women the same way, but it, for those that it does bother, it's like this thread that's tied into absolutely everything. And so the day of the anniversary of a abortion, they're grieving. The day of the anniversary of the due date of the, the preborn child, they're grieving. Mother's Day, they're grieving just random days that remind them. Um, we had to be careful where, where we chose our location so that there's no preschool playgrounds outside. We hide all the baby stuff, um, is all hidden away so that when the post-abortion clients come in, they don't have to see that because it tr it's all very triggering. So things that if you didn't know someone went through an abortion, you'd have no idea why is this triggering them. Uh, it could be why they don't want to go to a church, for example, because if they think God, God, they've done something that God can never forgive them for, then they, they're not going to want to go to church. Um, so you, you might see it. And again, you don't want to read into it and, and assume the wrong thing. But I think a lot of times we just don't know what's triggering this. Um, but when the numbers are that high, you know, it's affecting a lot of people. Right. So the good news is there's help. There's help oh, for yeah. uh, there's help for women. There's help for men. And uh, there are places like first place options where they can get that help. Um, before we, we close off, I wanted to go back to what I asked you about. Uh, can you know, a couple of guys like us even be talking about it? And, and you're right in the in the center of it. And uh, one element that I think needs to be stressed is going back to your own story, Rick, is that this is something that you've been called to do. Okay. And this podcast is Thinking Biblically. And one of the things about Thinking Biblically is we find ourselves confronted by uh, a loving God who calls us into areas of life that we may not have chosen. And we find ourselves in uh, sometimes in very strange places. Um, in some ways, I it's clear to me that you are equipped to do the work that you're doing, but in other ways, I'm sure you have felt ill-equipped to go into this whole realm. And probably you've learned humility, not just by playing goalie, but by also being the executive director of first place options. But that's where God has us. He, it, It's an interesting thing, the way he draws us into areas of competence and incompetence all wrapped up into one. I'm not saying you're incompetent, but you, uh -huh. you know what I mean. We, we our God's strength is proven through our weaknesses. Well, absolutely. And actually, it's allowed, from my perspective, it's allowed me to walk in in complete humility with with the team around me and with the clients that women because and um, complete reliance in the Lord. 
because there's lots of times I just look at it and say, Lord, I don't know exactly what to do. Um, who do I ask? Who do I like? What do, what do you want me to do here? Because you do, if you ultimately, if your goal is to love and serve people, I'm not sure why society's upset about that, but um, but it does add some power and, and the individual clients you serve or even the team when I'm trying to serve them, hopefully they're, they're seeing that I just want to help um, and let me help however I'm told to. So. And if people are needing this kind of help, if they are in uh, a situation where they they need help, counseling advice, or they simply want to know more about first place options, what should they do? Yeah, the best place probably for us is you just go to our website, which is firstplaceoptions.ca. Um, if you go into the website, there's all the contact information there. You can find out more about us um, and, and what to do. We don't get, and you're probably aware of this, but we get zero government funding. So it's all by donor support that we're able to do the work. Um, we do get off asked people will want to come and say, oh, can I start counseling? Well, we literally, we train our counselors, even our paid counseling staff get trained for about three months before we let them counsel with clients. And basically all our counselors now have some sort of counseling background. Um, so it's, it's somewhat specialty because some of what we deal with, um, yeah. but there are areas we can use volunteers too, to help with certain things and some of the sports stuff we do. Okay, well, so if if you need help, uh, if you want to get involved, uh, if you want to give, uh, please go to firstplaceoptions.ca. I'll put the link in the description. Um, if people, many people who watch this are not in the Ottawa area, if they contact you, do you have ways to send them to other uh, like-minded centers uh, throughout North America and other places? I'm more equipped truthfully to help people within Canada okay. um, because there is a great organization in Canada called uh, Pregnancy Care Canada, uh, which does great work. Um, and they're pretty like-minded in, in many ways um, on things. So I've worked with them on things. And so there's 80 or so different pregnancy care centers around Canada. Um, so in most places we, we can get you help. And truthfully, the way we operate now, um, we've learned how to be online. So we doubled our work through COVID um, by serving more people by going online to do the work. So we can serve people in certain areas. It's just um, ideally we'll get someone ho hooked up to someone as close to, as possible to them that will give them the kind of help they need. So. Okay. So very good. So thank you, Rick, so much for doing this with me today. Yeah, thanks. Alan. I always learn a lot talk, talking to you. So uh, thank you for your time. Even before that's, this. that's very kind. Okay, so as Rick mentioned, you can contact First Place Options by going to their website. Um, and if you have any questions uh, that you would like to direct towards me, you could always contact me at comments at thinkingbiblically.org. You could see past episodes at uh, the website, thinkingbiblically.org. And do remember to share and to subscribe and all those good things. So until next time, this is Alan Gilman with Thinking Biblically. Thinking Biblically.